we've got a slightly longer talk title today, so if you've got your pen and paper ready, and the spelling might be a bit difficult as well. The talk title is... Okay, so did everyone get that? You can spell it how you like. Um, does anyone know what classic movie that is a theme tune for? Great Escape? Yeah. 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 Has anyone seen that movie? Or anyone? Yeah. yeah. A couple of people. Danny, you've seen it? Yeah. That's good. Um, because this, this is, uh, something that my dad was very much into growing up was these, these war movies, these classic war movies came out in the 50s and 60s and, um, really spoke about the ingenuity of the men involved in almost hopeless situations in World War II and, uh, how that they, found these great methods to, you know, uh, change circumstances around them. And I suppose war um, is one of those great times where people bring up ingenious methods uh, and change technology and engineering and things like that. For those of you who haven't seen that movie, um, it is uh, a movie about prisoners of war trapped in a camp in, in uh, Poland in 1943 and trying to make their great escape. And it's actually based on a true story. So... To set the scene for today's talk, which is, if you are unsure, entitled The Great Escape, <laughs> I'm just going to um, give you guys a bit of an account of what actually happened there in Stalag Luft 3, which was the prisoner of war camp in Germany, and that's going to set the scene for today's Great Escape. Uh, so, in this camp that was specifically uh, built in 1942, purpose-built on sandy soil to make tunnelling almost impossible, and they built it in, in Poland, on the German border of Poland, uh, which is basically in the heart of what was the, the German Reich at the time. So the prisoners of war that were that were kept there, they were very much in the heart of enemy territory, um, and they were put in a place where escape was impossible. Uh, they were, in fact, the hardened prisoners of war who had escaped many times before, or who were considered high risk of, of escape. They'd been put there under the command of, of the prisoner of war commanders, um, specifically with the purpose of keeping them from escaping. Now they they had their um, they had their their orders that every British officer was uh, was under order to to attempt to escape prisoner of war camp, um, and then they were in this almost hopeless situation where they hundreds of miles behind enemy line, um, trapped by ruthless guards in a, in, a, in in a sandy soil camp. <laughs> Uh, and there was quite a few escape attempts from this one prisoner of war camp. Some of them were really ingenious, so I thought I might share them with you. The first one, in October 1943, from the East Compound, conjures up a modern Trojan horse. The prisoners of war constructed a gymnastic vaulting horse out of plywood from Red Cross parcels. The horse was designed to conceal men, tools, and containers of soil. Each day the horse was carried out to the same spot near the perimeter fence while the prisoners conducted gymnastic exercises above, a tunnel was dug. At the end of each working day, the wooden board would be placed over the tunnel entrance and covered with surface soil. The gymnastics disguised the real purpose of the vaulting horse and kept the sound of the digging from being detected from microphones. For three months, three prisoners of war, Codner, Williams and Philpot, in shifts of one or two diggers at a time, dug a 30-metre tunnel using bowls or shovels and metal rods to poke air holes in the surface. No shoring was used except at the entrance, and on the evening of 19 October 43, those three gentlemen escaped. 
So that was the first escape attempt, and it alerted the authorities that escape was possible from this camp, and um, and really heightened um, uh, the, the dangers for people attempting to escape. The German guards were on extra special alert. Uh, in March '43, um, this guy Roger Bushel, who was the RAF squadron leader, uh, approved uh, or designed this escape attempt um, that was designed to get hundreds of men out of this prisoner of war camp. A scale that had never been tried before. Previous escape attempts had included, um, like that previous one, three men, um, or maybe up to 20. Um, but the scale of this attempt was to try and include 200 men to escape, or over 200 men. Never been tried before, uh, but it had a re- relatively um, high chance of success, uh, as far as these things go. Um, not many of them were very successful at all. Um, and it was approved by, by the, the highest British commander in the, in the compound. Uh, there were three tunnels dug. I think we, I think we know that Tom, Dick, and Harry. And um, just kind of gloss over some of these details and get to the good stuff. Harry, which was the tunnel that was eventually uh, used because uh, Tom was discovered and blown up, and um, I think the other one, Dick, was under, was uh, eventually the ground where they were going to escape was cleared for camp expansion, and so there, there was no tree cover anymore for them to come up out of. So they essentially only had one tunnel left to work with, which was Harry. Um, Harry went right underneath the German administration offices. I mean, imagine the gall of escaping right underneath the Germans' noses. Um, it was hidden under a stove. The, the tunnel was about nine meters below the surface, which is remarkably deep um, for, for these tunnels. But they were very small, 0.6 meters by 0.6 meters, so very claustrophobic and isolated. The sandy walls were shored up with pieces of wood scavenged from all over camp, much of it from the prisoners' beds. Hundreds of prisoners used special pockets sewn into their pajama, pajama pants to cart pocketfuls of sand out and dump them in the general area. And they reckon, uh, they estimate that it took 25,000 pocketfuls of sand <laughs> to take this sand and, 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 uh, and use it elsewhere. They, uh, would turn it up in the garden beds or dump it in the general area, and that obviously became impossible once the snow came, which comes quite early in Poland, and probably in that area, probably five months of the year, has snow cover. Uh, eventually, the Germans discovered Tom, um, and they dynamited uh, the, the tunnel, and they basically ceased work for five months to try and avoid suspicion. Uh, Harry was eventually finished in March '44. It was previously planned that they would attempt in the summer when the weather is better, but the Gestapo visited the camp and ordered an increased effort to to detect escapes. So rather than risk waiting any further and having their tunnel discovered, the British High Command ordered the attempt to be made as soon as it was ready. The prisoners waited for a moonless night, and on Friday the 24th of March, the escape attempt began. As night fell, those allocated a place, because remember there were about 600 men used in this operation, about 200 of them were allocated an escape attempt, or uh, you know the ability to go out. They were given numbers, one to 250 or whatever, but the, the hatch was frozen shut, which took them an hour and a half to free. And then when they finally freed it, they realized that they weren't quite at the, the cover of the trees yet. They were still a couple of meters short of where they were hoping to be. And so it was possible they were outside the walls of the camp, but not quite in the tree cover. So that slowed down their initial um, estimate that they'd be able to get one man out per minute to about um, six men out per hour. So 
um, or sorry, 10 minutes per hour, so one every six minutes. Though it slowed down significantly, there was then an air raid at 1 a.m. where, the, where the, uh, the Allied forces dropped bombs in and around that area, which cut off the power to the camp and including the power that they'd used in the tunnels, and that slowed things down further. But despite all of that, 76 men escaped, including five Australians, believe it or not. They crawled through to freedom. On 5 a.m., the 77th man was spotted emerging by one of the guards. The guards had absolutely no idea where the entrance to this tunnel was, and they began searching the huts, giving the prisoners of war time to burn their fake papers. Hut 104, which is where Harry um, started, was one of the last to be searched, and despite using dogs, the guards were unable to find the entrance. Finally, a German guard crawled back through the tunnel, but found himself trapped at the camp end and began calling for help. And the prisoners opened the entrance to let, the, uh, to let him out, revealing the location. Harry was subsequently filled with sewage and sand and sealed by cement by the Germans. Following the escape, this is really uh, remarkable. The Germans, I mean, the Germans so efficient, and they obviously hadn't been taking very close care of their inventory, but they did an inventory or stock take of the camp and they discovered how extensive the operation had been. 4,000 bedboards had gone missing, 90 complete double beds, 635 mattresses, 192 bed covers, 161 pillowcases, 52 20-man tables. 52 20-man tables, yeah, I'm, not, I'm reading that correctly. 10 single tables, 34 chairs, 76 benches, 1,212 bed bolsters, 1,370 beading battens, I'm not sure what that is, um, 1,219 knives, 400 spoons, 500 forks, 69 lamps, 246 watering cans, 30 shovels, 300 meters of electric wire, 180 meters of rope, 3,424 towels, and 1,700 blankets and 1,400 kiln cans. So, a remarkable escape attempt, and it's just um, it's just amazing, and the story just conjures such, um, I don't know, such excitement, you know, that these guys were involved in something. They were stuck in an impossible situation, decided to make their own luck, and then and try and escape. They were, as I say, they were in a position deep in the heart of enemy territory, where escape seemed impossible, and yet they gave it a go. Now, the Bible actually tells some incredible stories of great escapes, um, some of the most incredible recorded anywhere in history. They're high-octane stories. They often involve goodies and baddies. The stakes are high, and there are always betrayal and plot twists along the way, or sometimes betrayal and often plot twists along the way. We don't have time to look at all of them today, but we'll look at a few, and it should be a bit of a highlight reel. Uh, and I've just got some that we'll just gloss over here, but Noah escaped the flood through hearkening, See what he did there? Hearkening to God's voice and building a boat in the desert. Israel and his sons escaped famine and starvation in, uh, you know, by fleeing to Egypt, which we heard uh, about in a recent talk from David. Ehud, this is quite a funny one. Um, he delivered the children of Israel from 18 years of oppression at the hand of King Eglon of the Moabites. Ehud gained private access to the king of the enemies and thrust a dagger, and that was the last he saw of it. <laughs> because King Eglon was a very fat man. He locked the door, and King Eglon's servants thought he was taking so long because he was in the privy. Meanwhile, Ehud made his escape through the quarries and blew a trumpet on a hilltop, indicating uh, national liberation. His fellow countrymen took their swords and slew 10,000 lusty, balafal men. 
So there we go. That's in Judges 3. Great escape. Escape for the, uh, for the people of Israel. Escape from bondage and oppression. King David, his entire life was one of close scrapes and great escapes. Esther helped her nation or her, her people escape uh, confiscation of their assets and extermination at the hand of Haman. Uh, at great risk to her own life in the process. I think we all know that story. In fact, if we didn't know it that well, I probably would have used it as the basis for this talk, but I think we all know that one really well. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego escaped the fiery furnace unharmed because they trusted in God. Daniel escaped the lion's den unharmed through his faith in God. The apostles escaped from prison by the hand of an angel, yet are faithful to the calling of God and presented first thing in the morning to the temple to go and preach again, ready to be recaptured. Peter escaped jail through the visitation of an angel. At that time, prayer was being made without ceasing, similar to the uh, the message that Pastor Rob sent out last weekend. And Paul and Silas sang praises unto God right through the night until they were freed from prison, uh, or at least an earthquake made it possible for them to walk out, and yet they chose not to because they would rather witness to the jailer and have their own liberty. As it was, they were set free by through the judicial process in the morning, and there was no harm that came to the jailer, and uh, they'd not only saved his natural life, but also his spiritual life through preaching the gospel to him. We each have our own stories of great escape as well. We heard one today from Pastor Rob of how he was trapped, how he could see no way out, was in bondage in his own mind, in his own situation, Yet when he realized that God was there for him all the time and that there was no limitation to how God could act in his life, he realized that there was a great escape plan made for him. And we praise the Lord for that. We can turn to Acts 27 where we'll, we'll look at the story of Paul. Uh, just talking about this one with Ashlyn this morning and she said, oh yeah, the kids did this last week in Sunday school. So we're only a week behind the kids, which is good. We're just thinking about our personal situations, perhaps our health, or our family, or financially, or in any other way, we're enslaved, or we're trapped, or we're imprisoned. But we know that we're not physically imprisoned because we're here today. We've come of our own free will, we hope, to um, to be here, to be in fellowship one with another. Um, but there are there are people around the world in our assembly who aren't in such fortunate circumstances. Um, but we know that we also have, have trappings in this life that we need a great escape from the Lord from. Acts 27 and 28, we're going to have a look at the um, Paul's journey. Sorry, that's Acts 27 and chapter 28. Acts 27, we'll start in verse 1. We'll look at Paul's journey on his way to Rome, where he had um, he was going to go and, uh, and plead his case. He was delivered to the hands of a centurion named Julius, and we'll pick it up in verse 1. When it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus' band. So they've got to sail all the way from uh, from where they were over to, to Italy. They end up going through Cyprus and another number of coasts, and they end up in a place called Crete, uh, a little island called Crete, which is quite a long, thin island like that. It's not um, it's not like a big, round island. It's like a long, thin island. And they ended up on the southern side um, in a place called Fairhaven, which sounds like a pretty good place, doesn't it? It's, a, it's fair and it's a haven which is kind of what you want for your boat. Um, now, we'll just skip down to verse 9. Now, when much time was spent, 
And when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already past, Paul admonished them. Verse 10, and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will hurt you, sorry, will be with, with hurt and much damage, not only of the landing of the ship, but also of our own lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in. Now, if you've ever heard anything more posh than that, they're in a place called Fairhaven. They've been warned that it's dangerous to sail this time of year. But they said, Fairhaven is not commodious enough for us. We are not amused. And they decided to depart for another port of of Crete called um, Phoenix translated here as Fenice, um, and there to winter, which is a haven of Crete, and lie towards the southwest and, and northwest. So they actually needed to go southwest over the, over the southernmost point of the island, and then northwest up towards the haven, which is called Phoenix. Um, verse 13, it says, And when the south wind blew softly, that's what they would actually need to hug the island coast, was a southerly wind. Supposing that they had attained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. So they thought all was well until verse 14. Not long after those arose a tempestuous wind called Euroclidon, which if you Wikipedia is a cyclonic tempestuous northeasterly wind that blows across the Mediterranean in the autumn and winter months. So they are trying to use a southerly wind to keep them on the southern coast of Crete and suddenly a northeasterly wind blows them and, and takes them off course and away from land and away from safety and away from the fair haven, which although wasn't commodious enough for them, would have no doubt kept them safe. Commodious just means spacious and comfortable, by the way. It it wasn't saying that it wasn't suitable for them. It just wasn't spacious enough or comfortable enough for them. Verse 15, when the ship was caught and could not bear into the wind, we let her drive, as in we let the wind take take over where the ship was going to go. Verse 16, and running under a certain island which is called Clouder, we had much work to come by, by the boat, which when they had taken up, they used helps undergirding the ship. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I think it means they use the prisoners to do some repair work on the ship. Uh, And fearing lest they should fall into quicksands, strake sail, and so were driven. So they decided that they didn't want to end up running ashore in this island, so they thought, hoist the main sails and we'll go as fast as we can so we don't end up getting bogged. Verse 18, And we being exceedingly tossed with the tempest, um, the night, sorry, the next day, they lighted the ship and the third day, it's just getting pretty hopeless now, the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship, the furniture and the ropes. They threw it overboard to try and lighten the ship. I don't know how much ropes weighed back in those days, maybe a lot. Uh, verse 20 it says, And neither sun nor stars in many days appeared. Obviously there was a thick cloud cover with this, with this autumn storm. And no small tempest lay on us. All hope that we should be saved was taken away. So, an absolutely impossible situation. They were safe where they were, they had the advice of Paul, the name of it should have given it away, um, and yet they chose, uh, the centurions and the masters of the ship decided that, let's just push on a bit further, find something a bit better, a bit more appealing to the eyes perhaps. And now they've not only missed the mainland of Crete, they've missed the small island of Clouder, and they're off um, drifting into the Mediterranean with no sun, to guide them where east and west is, no stars to guide them where to go. They're lost, they're an uncharted territory, and sometimes perhaps we can feel that way as well. 
whatever has, has happened. And you can see that this isn't Paul's doing. This isn't Paul's choice. He didn't choose to be arrested. He didn't choose to be um, delivered into the hands of the Romans. He didn't choose to be put on this ship. He didn't choose to leave Fairhaven when they did. And um, he didn't choose to throw the tackling of the ship over. And yet he's found himself in this uncharted territory where it says here, all hope that we should be saved was taken away. Verse 21, um, and this is one of the absolute classic I told you so's of history. But after a long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. Verse 22, and now I exhort you, be of good cheer, for there um, shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. Now this is remarkable because it really shows the ownership here. Sometimes we talk about taking ownership of a situation. I don't know if you guys have that terminology in your workplace or whatever. But when you're taking ownership, it means that you're taking charge. You're really seeing it through to the end. Now, who took ownership here? Paul gave God ownership. He never said, I'm on this boat, so we're going to be all right because I'm blessed of God. He says, whose I am, I belong to God and I serve God. Therefore, God will protect and deliver this ship. And there's a lesson in there for us as well. that we try of our own might, of our own strength, of our own will um, to take ownership of situations or do we hand it over to God? Verse 24, and the angel said, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God, that it shall be even as it was told me. 26, howbeit we must cast upon a certain island. So just to skip a few verses, I'll fill you in on what happens next. So there's two weeks that passes by since they left Crete. And on the 14th night, the sailors suspect that they're coming pretty close to an island that they don't know. They can't see because it's completely pitch black. And so they use ropes, weighted ropes, to find out how deep, to sound how deep the bottom of the uh, the ocean floor is. And they find that it's getting shallower and shallower. So in fear of their lives, they cast four anchors at the back of the boat to try and slow it down and to stop themselves from crashing into this island. However, Paul warns, uh, sorry, there's a number of sailors that decide that they want to take things into their own hands. They want to jump ship and go into a, one of the lifeboats or little dinghies or whatever they have attached to the boat. And Paul warned the centurion and said, the protection and blessing of God only applies to people on this boat. You know, this is where I am. This is where the blessing of God is. If they leave this boat, if they go off in their own little isolated uh, dinghy, they're going to die. And the centurions believe Paul and they cut the, they cut the ropes which attach the lifeboats. I think I get the image that they were just busy hoisting the lifeboat over the side, bringing it down with the pulleys and the centurions just went over, just cut the ropes. Yeah. That's done with that lifeboat. So imagine how impossible this situation is now. Paul's been arrested. He's not of his own free will. He's been taken on a voyage he didn't want to go on. He's been, um, he's not been, he's been ignored and they've, and they've ended up in these dire straits. 14 days, no food, no water, no furniture, no tackling. And then they just cut the lifeboats free. And then they're in the middle of the darkest night and they believe they're about to crash and shipwreck into an island. So it's, it's a pretty dark and, and, and uh, intense situation. Paul encourages 276 people on the boat um, when, as the day breaks. It's, sorry, it says that they actually they, they wished for the day. And they wished for the daylight so that they could see what was happening. They were stumbling around in the dark. 
And we know that the Bible talks about that imagery for us as well. So were some of us previous times. We were stumbling around in the dark. We had no idea and we were just wishing for the day. We were wishing for the light to shine in. And there are people out there that are like that. Some people like stumbling around in the dark. Some people like to pretend they like stumbling around in the dark. But either way, there are people out there that want the day, that wish for the day. As the day breaks, um, Paul encourages the, the men on board, on board the ship to uh, have something to eat. He blesses bread, breaks it, and gives to them and says, eat ye all of it. You can take from that what you will. Um, and as the day revealed where they were, they realized they were in, again, uncharted territories. They didn't know what island they were near. They didn't know where there was a safe place to find refuge for the ship. They didn't know if they were going to find anywhere at all where they could light the ship and, and find themselves um, on, on board. But they found a bay with a beach. They decided that they would run full sail at to try and ground the ship on the sandy beach and they, would all, they could all jump safely onto this island, whatever it was. So they, they loose all the anchors now as well. They cut all the anchors off because they need the boat to be as light as possible. They threw all the wheat overboard and they wanted the, the ship to be as fast as possible to make it onto this land. So we'll pick it up in verse 39. When day came, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach. I'm reading from the Amplified Classic now. Uh, and they decided to run the ship ashore there if they could. Verse 40, so they cut the cables and severed the anchors and left them in the sea while at the same time unlashing the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, they headed steadily for the beach. Okay, so now this boat, no, no, no food, no furniture, no tackling, no anchors, no rudder. All they have is the mainsail, which is blowing them as hard and as fast as possible at this beach. Verse 41, the situation does somehow keep getting worse and worse. <laughs> but striking a reef with waves breaking on either side, they ran the ship aground. The prow or forward point stuck fast and remained immovable. The stern began to break up under the violent force of the waves. Verse 42, the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would dive overboard, swim to land and escape. So now you've not only got the, you're at the mercy of the, of the wind and the waves blowing you where you will, the wind and the waves are trying to blow you where they will, but the ship itself is stuck on a reef. You've got no rudders, no anchors, no tackling, no anything. And the, and the rearward part of the ship begins to break up in the waves and the soldiers decide that they want to kill the prisoners because I, I don't know what punishment for a centurion or a soldier who uh, lost sight of his prisoner, um, but I imagine it would have been pretty violent if their intention was to kill the prisoners lest any of them escape. Surely you could, you could convince your boss that shipwreck would have been a good enough reason that you lost sight of a couple of prisoners, but um, they decided that they wanted to kill them. However... In verse 42, uh, sorry, verse 43, but the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He commanded those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to shore, and he commanded the rest to follow, some on floating planks and others on various things of the ship. And so it was that all of them were brought safely to land. All of them, all 276 were brought safely to land. Now, you think this is a remarkable story. This is a high-octane story. It keeps getting worse and worse, and you think, you know, how can this possibly relate to us? There are at least seven people um, in our assembly um, who were on flight Qantas 030, I think it is, Qantas Flight 30, from Hong Kong to Australia 
when an oxygen tank exploded, leaving uh, a gaping hole the size of a van in the side of the 747. They immediately lost pressure, and they were in the middle of the South China Sea with nowhere to land. That is a pretty hopeless situation, you know. For those for those seven um, saints on that on that plane, what do you do? What do you do? I mean, what can you do? It's all out of your control. You can't control the plane. The pilot does that, and the, you can't control the weather. You can't control where the next place to land is. What could they do though? They could pray. And that's what they did. They prayed without ceasing while they were on board that plane. And eventually that plane landed on a small island on a runway that was not big enough for a 747, which if you're unsure is one one of the bigger planes that that they have and requires quite a large runway. The pilot has uh, since sold a best-selling book about what how, um, how his miracle amazingness of being a pilot managed to save all 365 souls on that on that plane but we know that it was the hand of god that was at work there saving those that were praying to be to be saved and delivered so it does it does ring in my mind with that same story and acts 28 they come they find that they're in the island of malta near the city of melita and there were a barbarous people there in verse 2 and showed no little kindness for they kindled a fire and received every one of us because of the present cold rain, uh, sorry, because of the present rain and because of the cold. Um, if you actually look at the weather for Malta in uh, October, it's not that bad. But uh, I imagine with the storm, it was pretty. It was probably pretty cold. And bear in mind, these guys have barely eaten anything for two weeks. Um, you know how cold sometimes you get at a prayer and fast. Imagine these guys two weeks without food, constantly in fear of their life, all of the adrenaline burnt out, in shock. Um, and then here they are in, in, the, in the wind and the rain. In verse 3, and Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks. So he's all safe now. Don't worry about him. He's, he's pretty good, right? You know, he's found himself on safe, dry land. He's got himself uh, some nice barbarians who are being kind to him. They'll give him a fire and maybe something to eat. When he gathered a bundle of sticks, they laid on him and laid them on the fire. There came a viper or a snake out of the, out of the heart and fastened it on his hand. And some guys, you just think they just have all the bad luck, you know. <laughs> it just goes from bad to worse for Paul. When the barbarians saw the venomous beast hand on his, uh, hang on his hand, they said amongst themselves, no doubt this man was a murderer, uh, whom though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. You know, people made their judgments. They decided this guy's going through a pretty bad time. He's obviously a sinner. He has done some bad things and he deserves to die. This is the judgment of mankind, isn't it, really? And, um, you know, I think if you're really honest with yourself, you probably find yourself sometimes judging people in a way that you really should be leaving to God to judge people. You know, where people sit is between themselves and God um, in terms of their eternal salvation. We're here really as messengers to promote God's word and to show people the way to salvation. Um, But essentially people work their own salvation out with fear and trembling. Verse 5, and he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Howbeit they looked when he should have swollen and fallen down dead suddenly, but after they looked a great while, they saw no harm come upon him. They changed their minds and said, he is a god. <laughs> so suddenly things are looking up for Paul. He's gone from, uh, from being prisoner to murderer to god. Uh, and you can kind of understand why they thought he might be a murderer. He was there imprisoned by the by the Romans, and he was on that ship. 
uh, verse 7, in the same quarters were the possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius. Now, I'd kind of thought that Publius was probably a Roman, but Ashlyn told me this morning that in her mind, Publius was like the chief from Rota El Dorado. Anyway, either way, it doesn't really matter. Use, use whatever mental image helps you the best. Uh, he received us and lodged us three days courteously, and it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever um, and dysentery, uh, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when he had done this, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed, who also honoured us with many honours, and when we were departed, laded us with such things as were necessary. So the end of their the end of their estate was was better. You know, they they found safety, they found refuge. Um, they found the kindness of these people. They were able to preach the gospel there. They were able to show the signs, wonders, and miracles that accompany people who follow God's word and do according to his calling. It probably seemed like a pretty rough situation to Paul, um, but I suppose he would take comfort from the fact that he was visited by that angel and showed those things and, and told of that great escape. Uh, if you just want to turn it over, we'll just flick through a couple of scriptures now. Matthew chapter 2. We'll look at uh, the, the escape of Jesus Christ. Uh, actually, I might just gloss over this for time. Um, Matthew chapter 2 uh, tells the story uh, of how Joseph was, was warned in a dream uh, that they should not return, um, but they should go into their own country. Sorry, we better just go there. Matthew chapter 2 and verse, where are we? Well, just in verse 12. And being warned of God in a dream that they should return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child, his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken by the Lord, by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now this is one of the one of the first times that Jesus escapes um, death or arrest or apprehension. Uh, it's kind of a situation out of his his control. Herod has decided, through fear of being usurped, that he would kill all the all the young boys, uh, and so his parents fled to Egypt and and they made a great escape. You know they escaped the persecution that was no doubt going to befall young Jesus. In John 8, you can just flick over there as well if you like. Just a couple of scriptures here. This is when Jesus is a grown man and he is uh, talking, preaching. In verse 58 of John 8, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that was too hard for the people around about him to swallow. The fact that he was saying that he was older than Abraham they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. Another great escape. People took up stones and they were going to throw them at, at Jesus until he died, yet he made his escape. John chapter 10, just a couple of pages over, John chapter 10 and verse 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him, John 10, 31, uh, because of what he said in Verse 30, I and my father are one. Okay, this was considered by them to be um, heresy or uh, blasphemy. Then the Jews took up stones against Stonem, and Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my father, for which of these works do you stone me? 
And the Jews answered, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Uh, in verse 36, uh, sorry, in verse 37, If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do the works, though you believe me not, believe the works that you may know, and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand, and went away beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. So Jesus makes at least three escape attempts. I'm sure if you looked into it further, you'd find perhaps others. Um, but let's just turn over to Acts chapter 2, next book over, Acts chapter 2. Um, so it's, it's amazing, you know. The, every time the Jews tried to capture Jesus, he evaded them. He escaped. It's remarkable. And we know that, though, because Jesus was the Son of God, so that God wasn't going to let anything bad happen to Jesus. God was always going to make a way of escape for him. Um, and that should be, you know, where the story ends, surely. God made a way of escape for Jesus. Um, but in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, recounting the testimony of Jesus, you men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you, by miracles and wonders and signs. Remember what he said, if you believe not me, believe on the works that I do. Which God did by him in the midst of you, as yourselves also know. Verse 23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and with wicked hands have crucified and slain. That's not where it ended for Jesus Christ. In fact, it was a very different end for Jesus Christ. Jesus was arrested, falsely accused, ridiculed, beaten, mocked, spat upon, thrust through with nails and a spear, whipped, dehydrated, crucified and killed. That does not sound like a very glorious end for the Son of God. In fact, quite the opposite. That is the anti-escape. He was captured and they had their, they entirely had their own way with him. There was nothing that he could control that he could command in that situation. Yet he fully submitted himself to the will of man. As we all know, this is not the end for Jesus Christ either. Being the Son of God and the orchestrator of great escapes. In verse 24, but whom God had raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. That was not the end of Jesus Christ. And I suppose sometimes we're in impossible situations where we think, yeah, I know, I know that God can make a way of escape, but now it really is impossible. I told him I needed this by Tuesday, and now it's Thursday. You know, that sort of thing. Sometimes we wrestle in our mind. But have a look at the story of Jesus Christ, the greatest of escapes. Even death could not hold him. We heard about this last month at Creswick Town Hall, where Brad Noble spoke about the and and the but. The and carries the expected course, and the but shows a change of direction. For example, I ate too much peri-peri chicken, and I feel sick. The doctor said it should take two to three days for me to feel better, but I feel much better already. You know, but indicates a change of course and indicates the ways went forward uh, as expected. Acts chapter 13, verse 30, if I just quote it for you, it was the theme for our camp a month ago, but God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. It wasn't Jesus was crucified, slain, ridiculed, mocked, beaten, and now remains in the grave sleeping with his fathers. It was, but God raised him from the dead. And all the people said, Amen. That's the end for Jesus Christ. God raised him from the dead. It wasn't the expected end. It wasn't the way that man had planned for him. Just turn over to Hebrews chapter 2, please. We are kind of wrapping up now. 
Hebrews chapter 2. Um, you know, it's uh, the story of Jesus' death is one of the ones that's really difficult to take enjoyment from, to read about our Lord and Saviour um, having those things, um, you know, accused um, against him, um, to have the violence, to have the uh, the shame all put on him. You know, he was a blameless man. He came only to serve. Um, and yet for our sins he suffered. That's really difficult to take enjoyment out of. And yet, or but, that is where we get our joy and our hope from. Because, because he loved us that much and went through that and also made his own great escape, he's made it possible for us to make an escape out of every situation that we're, we're confronted with. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, one of my favorite scriptures, all time favorite scriptures, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste death for every man. You know, we, by all rights, should have to taste death. We should. And that should be the end of our story. That should be the end. But there's a but. But Jesus tasted death for every man. Verse 10 for it became him for whom all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. You know, it was needful that Jesus went through those things. Verse 11, it says, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. You know, Jesus Christ proudly calls us brothers and sisters now. He's not ashamed of us. He doesn't look at us with bitterness and resentment, thinking, I had to die for you, and you guys make mistakes every single day. You guys mess it up time and time again. He doesn't look at us with that shame. He looks at us with love and compassion and, and honor and hope and joy. But there is a, another warning here in Hebrews 2 and verse 3, another of my favorite scriptures. How shall we escape? How can we make our great escape if we neglect so great salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard, God also bearing witnesses both in signs, wonders and miracles, sorry, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Okay? So we know that Mark 16 indicates, and the, and the story of Paul and the story of Peter and our story as well, indicates that when, we're, when we believe, God confirms his word with signs, wonders and miracles, and all the people said, Amen. But if we're going to turn our backs on that, if we're ever going to turn away from that and neglect our great salvation, there is no hope of making that great escape. There is no hope. So we need to continually be promoting that, that gospel message not only to others, but also to ourselves. Sometimes we need to minister to ourselves. Sometimes we need to spend a bit of time in prayer, spend a bit of time reading the Bible, and making sure that we're taking these things in for ourselves and not neglecting or, you know, forsaking this great salvation that has been laid on. It's like a great feast. It's like this entire hall just filled with tables of food. It's been laid on for us. We didn't have to do anything. We didn't have to lift a finger. We just have to walk in and eat. Don't neglect it. Don't close the door. Don't sit over there and eat your sandwich that you made because you're grumpy. You had to make a sandwich when no one told you there was a feast on or something like that. Just go and dive in. 
just make full use of the salvation that's been made available for us. Now, when Paul, uh, sorry, when did Paul know that the Lord was going to deliver him from that shipwreck situation? In Acts 27 and verse 23 and 24, he describes the visitation by an angel who confirms to him, you are going to go before Caesar. So up until that point, Paul was probably uncertain or not. But if you go back four chapters to Acts chapter 23, the Lord himself visits Paul in prison and says, you will be a witness of me in Rome. Jesus Christ himself went in there. You can read it in Acts chapter 23. The words in red, pretty easy to find. Verse 11, you will bear witness of me in Rome. So Paul knew from that time, two years had gone by while he was in prison and then while he got put on the ship, and yet he knew with a surety that God would deliver him. He wasn't concerned for his own life. He said, sirs, believe me, you are going to suffer a great loss, including your own possessions and ship and probably many lives if you just carry on you know, taking this ship away from where it needs to be. But he knew that the Lord would deliver him of a surety. When did Jesus Christ know that God would raise him up from the grave? Was it in John chapter 20, when it finally happened? After three days, stuck in the grave, when he presented himself, as we heard about recently? Or was it in John 16, when John said, to, sorry, when Jesus said to his disciples, If I go not away, the Comforter will not come, but if I depart, I will send them unto you. A little while, you shall not see me, and again a little while, and you shall see me, because I go to the Father. He prophesied that. He had assured them. He had told them, this is going to be, there's a great escape plan here. Although you're going to mourn, although you're going to go off a fishing, although you're going to forsake me, although you're going to feel mistreated and let down, believe me, there is a plan of great escape here. God showed them what their future held, and it was then for them to trust and obey. And it's the same for us. Let's just uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians, if you would, please. 1 Corinthians 10, just a couple more scriptures to go. You can't really talk about making a great escape without looking at 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 13, really just the one scripture here. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but with the temptation also will make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Now this is sometimes not the scripture you want to hear, because this indicates God knows what you're going through, in fact, he's allowing it. He knows that you're able to bear that. Sometimes that's not what you want to hear. You're saying, I can't bear it. No, God, you need to make the but happen now. I can't have the and. I can't have this continuing. You need to intervene right now, right at the situation. Like I told you, I need it done by Tuesday. But maybe take great comfort from this scripture, knowing that whatever you're going through, the Lord has his hand upon you. The Lord knows what you're going through, and he is making sure that you don't reach that tipping point. Uh, just Second Peter, please. Second Peter, chapter two. You can keep your hand in First Corinthians because uh, we'll go back there to finish. Second uh, Peter, chapter two. There's a couple of scriptures here as well. Um, there's a, there's a great scripture in in verse nine that backs up kind of what we've just read in First Corinthians ten thirteen. Two Corinthians two verse nine. Just the first half of the scripture. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Two Peter two verse nine. First half of the sentence. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. So we know that God has all things in hand, and he's not going to allow us to reach a point where there is no escape, where there is no longer any way, any provision made for us to find our way back to him. 
just uh, flick over the page to verse 19. This is really talking about the, the ungodly or those who are false teachers and, and try and persuade men of a wrong doctrine. Verse 19, while they promise them liberty, them being truth seekers, I suppose, they themselves are servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, the same is he brought into bondage. Okay, so if we're overcome by anything, we're brought into bondage of it, we're brought into imprisonment, we're brought into the prisoner of war camp, and set in the heart of the enemy again. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein, and overcome, the latter end is worse um, with them than the beginning. It's a really, really harsh warning. You know, if we found the truth, don't let it go. It's far worse for us now to let the truth go, to let it slip, to be re-entangled and recaptured by the world. Unfortunately for these 76 men that escaped the prisoner of war camp, 73 of them were recaptured. And the end for them, believe it, was worse than when they were in there in the beginning. Um, you can look it up what happened to them. Uh, I won't say it up here, but it was, it was pretty bad. And it's kind of an analogy for us as well. You know, if we've escaped the pollutions, if we've escaped the uncleanness, and we've found our great escape plan to make it through to refuge and safety with God, don't get re-entangled. Don't get recaptured. Don't get bogged down. No matter what you're going through, don't allow it to drag you down to the worldly level. Because the end thereof is worse than the beginning. Um, verse 22, But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned unto his own vomit again and the sow that was washed is wallowing in the mire. You know, sometimes, and we do see this from time to time, really, unfortunately, people returning to the mire that, they, that they've been saved from, that they've got out from. And it should be, you know, a really stark warning for us not to make, to make sure that we're not going down that path. God has made a way of escape possible for us. 1 Corinthians 15, please, second last scripture. Uh... Again, another of my favourites. It's been like a bit of a favourites reel today. Really enjoyed writing this talk. Um, so if we're talking about how that Jesus knew his escape was assured because God had revealed it to him, God had showed him, and he had then prophesied it to his disciples, if you know that Paul knew his end was sure because Jesus had revealed it to him and showed him um, how that he would be uh, in Rome or spoken to him how he'd be in Rome, he knows that even in the tempest, even in the vilest of storms, he was assured that that would be his end. Okay? And that is the same for us. You and I, our history has gone by, our present is right now, and our future has already been written for us, believe it or not. We haven't had Jesus come to us in the prison cell, and we haven't had an angel come to us by night. But by the truth of God's word, and we know that Jesus Christ is the word made flesh, so Christ has revealed this to us. We know what our future holds. First Corinthians 15, verse 51. But I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the last trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall raise incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption, sorry, this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So we know our end. It's been assured. It's been spoken to us by the word that our end is assured. We will be changed. We will be transformed and transfigured into the likeness of Jesus Christ that is appearing. Okay? So 
when Paul took great comfort from that, knowing that whatever he had to go through, his end was assured. And Jesus took great comfort. And Daniel took great comfort in the lion's den. And many others, Noah, um, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all of these examples, they indicate to us that no matter what you're going through, no matter how impossible the situation is, like the Pastor Rob described in his testimony, the Lord has made a way of escape. Not future tense, not present tense, past tense. He's already seen us from when the world began and he knows our end from the beginning. Let's just turn and finish off in Luke chapter 21, please. Let's think about what these um, these examples, these these men of faith and women of faith, what they had put in to this great escape plan. We know that the escapes were orchestrated by the hand of God. We know that God watched over them and provided that way of escape. That's written in the scriptures. But there were some common threads that those people involved in that great escape did. And if you're in a situation that you have no control over now, maybe your life is in a tempest, tossed to and fro. You never chose to be in this situation. You have no idea how to get a way out. Let's have a think about the way that these people um, reacted. Faith. To perform God's word. Um, even when it came accompanied with personal loss. Even when it caused them personally harm, to, to be harmed, the people still had faith. To put faith in God, to do his work, to do his calling, and to know that he would see them right in the end. Trust. They trusted in the Lord that God had the whole situation in hand from beginning to end, and that even when it was impossible, God had a way of escape. Prayer and fasting, which was a common thread through Daniel and Esther and, and through Jesus' life and Paul's life. And in fact, we know that, I don't know whether it was imposed or not, but he had 14 days of fasting before that shipwreck was resolved. Um, but we know that constant prayer and fasting makes it possible for the Lord to provide a way of escape. No matter how impossible your situation is, the Lord can and has and will make a way of escape. Remember this verse from Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Okay, just finishing off here in Luke chapter 21, verse 36. Again, kind of a sobering, reflective scripture. It's the end of Luke chapter 21, which is the, the last days, which is really the, uh, the unfolding of uh, the last 2,000 years of history, uh, which is where we get to our present day and age and the return of Jesus Christ, uh, we hope not in the not-too-distant future. Verse 36, Watch you therefore and pray always that you might be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. That is our end goal, that's our end aim, that's what we've been written in the Bible, that's our future that we're driving towards, is to stand before the Son of Man, and to be called faithful, true and faithful, enter into the rest of the Lord. How do we do that? It's really, really complex, but I'm going to break it down for you in one sentence. Watch ye therefore and pray, that you might be counted worthy to escape. And we heard that in the gifts on Tuesday night. If you want to get to heaven, you better keep praying. It's as simple as that. It's as complex as you want to make it, but it's as simple as that as well. So no matter what your situation is, just take great comfort from the stories that we have right throughout the Bible. If you don't know them, get to know them. If you want a list, come see me and I'll, I'll happily share my talk notes with you. But the Lord has made a way of escape for dozens of people before, for hundreds of people, for thousands of people, and he has an escape plan written for you. For all the people said, 
Amen. Amen.